Good morning. I want to read to you a verse from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 5, verse number 42. This, uh, this verse, basically the same idea this verse, is repeated three different times in the book of Acts, and it gives us some insight to what they were doing in the early church when the church first began after Jesus Christ ascends to heaven. Now here we have the church. What did they do? Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. House to house is what I want to focus on. House to house. So you got this sheet when you uh, walked in inside of your bulletin. I imagine at the top it says Grace House Church meeting on Sunday, December the 5th. We cannot be in this location. Don't show up. They won't let us be here that day. So what we're going to do is we're going to go old school. We're going to do house church. And so you can fill this form out and drop it in the box at the connect table. And uh, we'll get you connected to a house church. All the information about what that exactly means and looks like for the most part is on that sheet. So we hope that you'll take a journey with us back in time and check out house church coming up. Okay, so today we are going to continue talking about who is Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about it from the book that really focuses in the Bible specifically on who Jesus Christ is, which is the book of Hebrews. We're going to go through uh, the first chapter in the book of Hebrews. Let me just uh, say a word of prayer before we begin. God, I just pray that you'd be with us today. This is a you know, really important subject, and uh, Lord, I just pray that you would give us insight and guidance um, into your word, help us to understand what is it that you are saying to each one of us uh, today, individually, corporately, and what should our response be? And I ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Just want to say a brief apology uh, to all the Dallas Cowboys fans out there. I know that you're, I know they're here because you let me know this all the time, and it's just an example of the grace of God that we allow you into the doors each and every week. So sorry for the complete meltdown that's going on down there in Big D, and uh, our hearts are very saddened for you. It's happening there. Okay. All right, what about angels? Okay, here's, here's the thing. There's a couple really important things that we need just in context here to think about. All right? So Jesus Christ throughout this is being compared to angels and that he is far superior. And all of this is driving to a final point. Now, Here's the thing that it's driving to. Um, this is kind of the writer of Hebrews. Again, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Writer of Hebrews, anonymous. It's the anonymous book of the New Testament, which is quite interesting being the fact that Hebrews is all about solely lifting up Jesus Christ. Like Jesus is the only focus. Isn't it interesting that that is the one book we absolutely have no idea who the author is. And that's what the goal of the book is, is to only lift up Jesus Christ. So I don't think it's quite a coincidence there. Uh, he's writing to people who live in a big city. Kind of like we living in a big city. And they're facing a lot of the same stuff that we are. Big city temptations. Big city distractions. The busy schedule of the big city. All this same stuff that we face. Now, he is also very important here. He's writing to a group of people who believe in Jesus Christ. He's writing to a group of people who know. You know, some have accepted that, but everybody that he is writing to knows it. And in this case here, he's given them, there's no easy way to say this, he's given them a big shove. And he's saying to you, saying to me, in the midst of this, that it's not okay to be apathetic considering the fact 
of all that Jesus Christ has done. And we're going to get into a little bit of that in a minute. So if you're wondering in a minute, what in the world with the comparison with the angels? What is the deal? They had a very high and elevated view of angels. And so he's making this. He said, okay, if you have such a high view, Jesus is much higher. And because of that, you can't be apathetic. Now, let me say one last thing before we just dive right into this. There is one thing that in the scriptures that you see clearly that God is not okay with. And that is spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. Revelation chapter 3. I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold. Option one is hot. Option two is cold. Third option, right in the middle, spiritual apathy. To whom much is given, much is required. So they had a certain amount of knowledge. All of us in this room have varying degrees of knowledge about Jesus Christ. We'll gain more in a minute as we go through this. What are you doing with that knowledge? And if you're doing nothing, if you're apathetic about that knowledge, what the writer is saying, and he's like right up in our grill saying this, everybody. It's the only way I can say it. He's right in our face. He's saying, do you think it's okay? This great thing that Jesus Christ, you think it's okay just to be apathetic and just coast through and drift through life? And he's saying, no, it's not. There will be consequences. All right. That sets it up. Now, here we go. Um, first of all, uh, at the end of verse number two in Hebrews chapter one, which I don't think I included on your little blue sheet. So it's probably not on the screen behind me. But just one little thing uh, it says here says this, that Jesus Christ made all things that he made the universe, which is exactly what Genesis one one tells us is in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. This is so important. Right. Jesus Christ is the maker of all things. The next thing we'll learn in this in verse number three is that Jesus Christ sustains all things. He pulls all things together. Now, science up until, I don't know, 60, 70 years ago, leading scientists like Einstein and the like believed that the universe had no beginning, that it was eternal. And when they looked at the Bible in verses like this, they said, look, you know, it's outdated. The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about here. When in actuality, what was proven, scientifically proven to Einstein himself by a Roman Catholic priest who was also a scientist, is that in fact, by scientific evidence, the universe does have a beginning. And Einstein said it was the biggest blunder he ever made in his life, saying that the Bible was wrong. What I'm saying to you here, we're told, is that Jesus Christ says he created the universe. Science was lagging behind the Bible. A few weeks ago, I showed a very controversial clip on the grilled Jesus. Does anybody remember the controversial grilled Jesus clip? You might recall in the midst of that clip that one of the guys in the little whatever thing that was, um, what do you call that thing? The thing, the singers, the singing people, who do they? Glee Club, there you go. I guess that's the name of the whole show. Okay. Uh, I don't watch the show, so I, anyway. Uh, so he says, I don't go to church because churches don't think much of science. Now, how did that happen? Because the Bible tells us this, everybody, the Bible says that we should study to show ourselves the proof. It says we should seek after truth. It, it pushes us in the direction of an explosion of knowledge and going after. And here's the thing. We want to, if we are followers of the Bible and followers of Jesus Christ, we want to fuel all the fires we can on knowledge to increase, 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 increase. Why? Where does all that knowledge take us to? When you seek after the truth, it ends in truth. And where, who's the truth? Who's called the truth in the Bible? Jesus Christ. 
We are all for scientific exploration because when science catches up with the Bible, the two will meet together and we will find what we keep finding over and over again is the Bible is right along. Smart guys like Einstein said it was ridiculous, then proven to a fact through science that what the Bible says is absolutely true, all for the study of scriptures. It says that Jesus Christ sustains everything, that he holds everything together. If he is able to hold everything together in this universe, surely he can hold my life together, can he? Are there any clues that somebody or something, possibly, are there any scientific clues whatsoever that somebody's holding things together? Let me give you just a couple clues briefly. The sun is 93 million miles away from the earth, and it's 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface of the sun. If the sun was any farther away, we would freeze. If it was any closer, we would burn up. If that distance changed at all, we would be in big trouble. The earth is tilted on its axis by 23.4 degrees. If that tilt changed after all these millions of years, we would no longer have four seasons. The moon is 238,000 miles away. If that distance changed after all of these years, the oceans and the seas would flood the dry land. Finally, think about this. The density of our atmosphere, the density of our atmosphere... Uh, meteors hit our atmosphere coming to the earth all the time and they burn up in that atmosphere if it thinned out at all those meteors that just harmlessly burn up in that atmosphere would fall to the ground and would rain down on us now i thought to myself how often does that happen like how many meteors are coming by i know there was a, a movie a few years ago about a big meteor coming and we're going to blow it up or something what does that happen like once in every million years so i went on wiki and i said how often are meteors out there? Is this like a big deal or whatever? And you know what Wiki said back to me? It says millions of meteors are in the Earth's atmosphere. Check this out. Daily. Daily. Like we'd have to live underground if that was the case. It just seems that somebody is sustaining this thing and pulling together, scientifically speaking. That's what, and this is what the Bible says, that Jesus Christ sustains it. Now it goes on. It says that Jesus Christ provides purification for sin. After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Why is that a big deal? Well, obviously it's a big deal that he provided purification for sin. So up until that point, what was going on? Well, the priest, sacrifice after slaughter after slaughter after slaughter of animals over and over and over. It's exhausting. Isn't it exhausting trying to be perfect? How many people here are perfect? You can raise your hand if you are. You know, none of us will raise our hand, but here's, you know what I want to Here's what I find to be true. When people get in an argument, when I get in an argument with somebody, I'm really heated up. Deep down, I really do think I'm perfect. Because when, when, you, like, when you put something on top of fire, the true whatever's inside really comes out. And when I get in an argument, like, you know, let's just say maybe I got in an argument with my wife or whatever. So if that, if that happens, all of a sudden she points out to me, you think, you think you're perfect. You think, no, I don't. And so she's... She calls me Jesus sometimes, not in a, not in a loving way. And I, and I call her the Virgin Mary because she thinks she's, she thinks she's perfect too. So what happens is deep down inside, there's this sense of our own perfection. And we get an argument with somebody, it's not my fault. It's you're hundred percent wrong, right? It really comes out. And so we strive for perfection. We strive to be perfect and we can't do it. And so sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And then we're told, then come along comes Jesus. 
And there's no more striving anymore. He makes one sacrifice and no more of the slaughter of the animals. He makes the one sacrifice and then he, he sits down. Why is that significant? There was no seats. There was no place for there was no place for the priest to sit down in the temple. There was no seats because you would always work. You always had to work to be perfect. And what Jesus Christ is saying to us, you're striving and struggling with this noose around your neck to be perfect in the eyes of God can end because of what Jesus Christ did provided purification and then boom he sits down that's what he has done for us now let's talk specifically about angels because angels didn't provide purification angels didn't create this universe angels don't sustain this universe and yet they had a very very his audience when i'm speaking here has this extremely high view of angels very very elevated view in fact colossians 2:18 tells us some people were even worshiping angels so let's read verses four and five. It says this it says, so he became Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name that he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son today? I've become your father or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Let's spend just a few minutes talking about angels. Okay, what are angels? Angels are spirit beings. They're without gender, which means they don't have offspring. But apparently they can take on human form. Hebrews chapter uh, 13, verse number two says this. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing. So obviously they can take on some kind of human form. That seems to happen. They believed here in the book of some people in the book of Hebrews, this high, high view of angels believed that there was an angel. This is not biblical stuff. I'm telling you now. This is just this belief they had. There was an angel in charge of the of the stars. There was an angel in charge of the seas, an angel who was in charge of the weather. There was an angel in charge of hell. There was an angel in charge of death, the death angel. We know that from touched by an angel. There was uh, an angel who was in charge of the recording angel. The record, they had a recording angel. And that's not a recording artist. That's not the singer. This was somebody who would record every word that you spoke. You know, it's, write it down and I guess turn it over to God. What, what do uh, they look like? Well, we don't know. Like I said, they can take on different forms. But in Matthew chapter 28, uh, there is an angel there at the tomb, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it says that that angel's appearance was like lightning. So whatever, bam, light. He was bright. He was shining. In Daniel chapter uh, 7, Daniel tells us that the angels are too numerous to count. We don't know what number that means. But what we do know, what it implies through the scripture is that there is a whole lot of them. Some people estimate there's billions, even trillions of angels, whatever, big numbers, a lot of them. Daniel also tells us because he had this incident where he was thrown into a den of lions because the king stuck him down there and real hungry lions. And so the king comes out the next morning and yells down into the pit. Daniel, was your God able to save you? And what does Daniel yell back? He yells back. He says, yes, an angel came and held the lion's mouth shut. So angels are very, very powerful. We see that angels rescued Lot and his family from Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that Jerusalem at one point was under siege by the Assyrian army. Now, the Assyrian army, very powerful, very strong, extraordinarily cruel. Like they had laid siege to Jerusalem. And when they got through those walls, and they were just going to they were going to maim, hurt, dismember, be as absolutely as cruel as possible to the people living in Jerusalem. This is a terrible thing. And so the night before like the sea that the siege is over the next day and they're just gonna boom they're gonna they're gonna come in we're told that night before they started their attack that one angel goes into their camp and killed one hundred and eighty five thousand assyrian soldiers 
Finally, thing I want to say about this. Genesis 3.24, we're told that after Adam and Eve falls and they kicked out of the garden, that God places an angel on the path to protect the way to the tree of life. What about notable angels? Gabriel. You might recall Gabriel. Gabriel's like, he's called the mighty one. He's the one that would give special messages. He's the one that show up, showed up to Jesus' mother, Mary, and said, you're going to have a son. The Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you. He gives very, very special messages. Michael. Michael is the warrior angel. This is the tough guy. This is the guy that when you see him many times, he's involved in some incredible battle. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Michael is going to fight the dragon. The dragon is Satan himself, and they're locked in this huge battle. And finally, Lucifer. Lucifer. The big three in the angel category, at least, seems to be Gabriel, Michael, and Lucifer. Lucifer is the guy who is the devil. He rebels against God and he's thrown out of heaven and a third of the angels go with him. And we call them demons today. And hell was created for the devil and his demons. Well, how about you guys? What do you think about angels? I have the answer for you. (laughs) Do Americans believe in angels? Yes, we do. Eighty percent of us, according to surveys, believe. Eighty percent of us believe in angels. Sixty eight percent of us believe that angels are very active in the world today. And fifty five percent of us believe that we have a guardian angel who is protecting us. We believe in angels. Enough of that. Verses four and five tells us that Jesus Christ has check this out, everybody. Important word. He has inherited a name, inherited a name. And the name he has inherited is son. Now, from time to time, I get asked about Jesus and uh, how can he be God if he's son or how can he be God if he was begotten or firstborn? And what does that mean? And I'm having a hard time with Jesus. And where is he in the whole deity thing? I can understand the Father. I just can't understand the Son. And there's no way I can understand the Holy Spirit. But how do I understand Jesus Christ? And what's the deal? And he's the Son. And what does this mean? Here's the The title. I'm going to go real slow here. Because somebody in the first service came to me and said, what were you saying? They thought I was saying that Jesus didn't exist until the point I'm getting ready to tell you right now. So let's be clear. The title son for Jesus Christ did not exist until Jesus Christ took on flesh. Jesus has always he was Jesus has always just been plain old God. Okay? If there's any way to be plain old God, that's that's who he was. When he took on flesh is when he took on the title. He inherited a title by taking that on. So in our minds we're trying to think, oh my gosh, how Father, son, is there some kind of, you know, lower, you know, like God and half God or whatever. Always God, always God took on the title when Jesus Christ decides to take on flesh. This is what it means when it says he inherits this. Now, we get glimpses of that in other places. Luke chapter one, verses 32 and 35. Gabriel speaking to Mary says this, speaking about Jesus. Jesus will be great. And he will be called, future tense, he will be called the son of the most high. Verse 35. The holy one to be born, Jesus, speaking of, will be, future tense, called, will be called the son of God. Here in verse number five, it says, today I have become your father. This is a point in time he inherits it when he takes on flesh. Last thing about this, John chapter one. Jesus Christ is called the word. 
in the beginning was the word. The Gospel of John is like the, the start over book of the New Testament. You've got it begins the same way Genesis does at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And earth. What you've got in John chapter one, it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. The words what God and all thing was created by the word. So we've got like a second Genesis going on here. The Bible specifically, John calls Jesus Christ, not the son, but constantly the word. And then once it says, and the word became flesh, boom, now all of a sudden he's called son. So if that helps at all, that title of son is not an eternal title. God is eternal. Jesus is eternal. But the title is inherited when he took on flesh for us. Now, more about Jesus' deity, verse number six. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world. Well, firstborn, what does that mean? I think we talked about this two weeks ago. Has nothing to do with chronology. Has everything to do with a legal, it's a legal term, firstborn. 2,000 years ago, that's what the term meant. Firstborn's legal term means he is the inheritor of everything. Means he owns. I think I talked about that a few weeks ago, and I talked about the fact that I own my wife, if you remember that point. And if you, if you weren't here and you're offended, please go back and listen two weeks ago to be less offended by what I just said. But at least I woke some of you up because you're very angry. So, uh... <laughs> He owns firstborn means he it's, a, it's, it's not a chronological term. It's a legal term. He owns that's who Jesus. OK. And again, when God brings his firstborn in the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Well, the angels don't get worship. God, Jesus, far superior, far superior to that. Now, hang with me. This is all building to something. Hopefully, maybe. All right. So. They get worship in the Bible. Only God receives worship. And if anybody else accepts worship, right, if anybody else, accepts, like you see one time, a couple different times, actually, people go to worship angels and angels. Say, oh, no, 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 no. Get up, up now. Get up now. Why? They're afraid. What are they afraid of? They're afraid of God. They don't square it away. I'll tell you why they're afraid of God. Acts chapter 12. Check this out. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on the throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, check this out. What happens? All the people shouting to King Herod, this is the voice of a God. It's not of a man. They're worshiping his God. What's going to happen to Herod? It's not good. Not good. Immediately, verse 20, immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. You know, I don't know why it's necessary to say he was eaten by worms. That's like an added little, mm, right? Eaten by, he's dead. Man's dead. Eaten by worms. Okay, so we know, whoo, it's bad. So only Jesus Christ clearly claims his divinity in John chapter five and in John chapter 10. The apostle Paul clearly, clearly talks about the divinity of Christ in Titus chapter two. He says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and savior, who who's our great God and savior? Jesus Christ is what he says. So uh, Jesus is destined to rule and to reign is what the scripture tells us. Angels, on the contrary, are destined to do what? Rule and reign? No, serve. They're to serve God, they're to worship God, and they're also going to serve somebody else. Hebrews 1, verse number 14. Here's what it says. Now we can talk about guardian angels for a second. Uh, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation? Let's read it again. Who are angels, everybody? Are not all angels 
ministering spirits sent to serve. Serve who? Who are they serving? Serve those who will inherit salvation. So God knows through his omniscience, those who have already received salvation and those who will receive salvation. And he commands his angels concerning them and they go and they serve those people. I don't know what that means. Is it to protect them? Are they the guardian angels? I don't know, but they're serving them in some way, shape, form, or fashion. All right. The Bible does not ever record someone praying to an angel or seeking the help of an angel. The Bible does not encourage us to say, oh, you know, I don't know what I could name an angel or something, whatever. Harry, hey, Harry, you know. I could use your help today. The Bible doesn't record anything like that. So we don't seek that kind of help. Actually, there is only one instance in which somebody is trying to persuade another person to seek the aid of an angel. Matthew chapter 4. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus Christ, he is out being tempted in the desert by who? The devil. Second temptation. The devil takes Jesus Christ up to the top of the temple, way up high, huge peak. He stands up there and the devil says to Jesus, he says, throw yourself down. Why can he do why? Because and here the devil quotes scripture to Jesus. He says, Psalm 91, 11, Jesus, he will command his angels concerning you so that your ways will be guarded and you'll be safe. Blah, blah, blah. That's what he says. So he's tempting them. Okay, I can just have my angels take care of me. And Jesus Christ says, no way. So the only reference we have to somebody trying to encourage somebody else to seek the aid of an angel was the devil. Bad company. Bad company. We don't want to put our attention on angels in that way, seeking their help, because the Bible never once encourages that kind of activity. However, what we're encouraged to is to focus on God, to fix our eyes, according to the book of Hebrew, on Jesus Christ. We don't request help from angels. We don't command them around. We don't ask them to serve us or to save us or to protect us or anything else. God is the one in Scripture who commands his angels what to do. So you better go straight to the source. That's what the Scriptures encourage us to do. Go straight to Jesus Christ. Now, we're told this, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, that the devil shows up as an angel of light and tries to deceive us. And in the book of Hebrews here, they had this massive elevation of angels. And what the writer here is simply trying to do is saying, you know what? You got this huge. Let me tell you something that far surpasses anything about angels that you might be thinking about. Now, let's try to conclude this thing. Okay, see if we can't bring this airplane in for a landing here this morning. Does this make any sense whatsoever? What are you talking about? I'm wondering the same thing. All right. Hebrews chapter two. How does that affect my life? Right here, right now, why is that a challenge for me? There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. Warning number one is this, and it builds right off of all the information that we just discussed here together. Remember, he's talking to people who are in the know, to whom much is given, much is required. Every single one of us now have a piece of information. Some of us have more, some of us have larger pieces, some of us have smaller pieces, but we all got a piece of information now. Question is, what will you do with it? And is it okay for you to do nothing with it? Well, here's what the writer says. We, Hebrews chapter 2, we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how 
shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? What is being said here is we have to pay very close attention to what we have just learned. If Jesus Christ is far superior and we look at the, we look back and we say, oh, the message that was delivered. Well, what does that mean? The message delivered by angels. What this is referencing here is the same thing that Stephen in Acts chapter seven references. That it was the angels with God on top of Mount Sinai with Moses. Remember, um, okay, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, up on the Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. Everybody remember? Okay. And God, and here's the Ten Commandments. What does Scripture indicates to us in here, Acts 7, also in Psalm 68 and Deuteronomy 33, is that the angels played a very significant role in delivering the Old Testament law to Moses that day. So what it's saying, it was delivered by angels. And if you respect them so much and they delivered this Old Testament, I'm telling you about something that is far superior to that. You have a new covenant. It is the covenant with Jesus Christ that he died for your sins and he is your savior. It's by grace. It is by grace. However, what he's saying is what makes you think that if you are apathetic about what Jesus Christ, like if you have that information and you're not doing anything with it, but you just think, hey, man, it's okay. I live in a big city. I'm distracted. I got a lot of stuff on my calendar. Look, all of us know when we're apathetic. We all know it, right? Forget everybody around you for a second, what everybody else might think about you and your spiritual condition. I know when I'm apathetic in my relationship to God. I know when I'm moving forward. I know when I'm standing still and I know when I'm going back. What the writer is saying here is it's not okay. There will be consequences. He says this. He says, look, he says, for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how in the world are we going to escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This is like, again, he is up in our face and he's saying it is not okay. Jesus Christ went through something incredible for us just to kind of play around. You know, walk by him every day as if what he did for us wasn't of tremendous value. Now, I don't know what you think about Mel Gibson, especially right now with all of his problems. But what the guy put together in that film, according to all the study I've done way before he ever came out with that film on the Passion of Christ, the beating and the crucifixion that Jesus Christ took was the most accurate depiction of reality of what he went through. 2,000 years ago. That's exactly. And that was a horrendous price that he paid. And the writer is saying, do you think you will escape? Listen, we're all saved by grace. But do you think that you will escape any and all consequences if you're completely spiritually apathetic? This is, he's warning. He's saying, man, he's, don't drift by this. It's not okay to know this information and then to not do anything with it. And act like, well, it didn't exist or I'm too busy or, you know, it's all about grace. It is all about grace. But there's a consequence. And so he's he's warning. Jesus tells this parable, Matthew chapter 13. He says the kingdom of God is like a pearl, a pearl of great price. There's a guy and he's a pearl collector or something. And he he's going around. He's looking for an expensive pearl. And one day he finally finds this pearl of tremendous value. And it says he goes and he sells everything he has to buy that pearl. Why? Because the value is so 
incredibly high. What Jesus Christ did for us, the value is off the charts. It's off the charts. We can't just go on like business as usual if it is off the charts. And because of that knowledge that we have, we are required by him to do something with that. We know where we stand most of the times with God and what we're doing with our life. Are we hot? Are we cold? Are we lukewarm? And what the writer is encouraging us to do is to move forward in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, wow. You, we thank you for your word. Uh, you're just kind of really laying it right out there uh, this morning in, in, in your word, God. And I just pray that all of us would, I don't know, have an understanding of what that means for each one of us. I mean, I, I, I love reading the scripture verses about grace and how much you love me and it's all okay and that kind of stuff. But, you know, when it comes to this and you're just like right up at my face, God, and challenging me, this is tough. And so I'm wondering if maybe others in the room feel the same way. So I just want to pray like I'd pray for myself, that, God, you would help all of us to deal with it, that um, we know your word says in the book of Hebrews that if we're apathetic, you're going you're gonna to discipline us. And um, that's not a favorable thought. So, Lord, whatever each one of us needs to do to move forward in you, uh, to stop that spiritual drifting, to just cease all the drifting in our lives and to sail into the harbor, God, that you have for us. Help us, Lord, to do that, to live the life that you've called us to live. And I'm asking this in your name. Amen.